Hey everybody, this is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse, and this week I have a very special guest. His name is Cam. He is a friend of Christine's with Antidotes Podcast Stories in Medicine. She and I go on each other's podcasts and help each other out a lot, and so I love listening to her stories, and uh, so Cam, she kind of connected the two of us. You are at a little bit of a different part of... Uh, medicine. Tell us a little bit about what you do. So I do medical reception and x-ray registration for an internal medicine office. Mm -hmm. So I get the other side of all intake versus actually caring for the patient. Mm -hmm. So it's definitely a different standpoint from the nursing, but I have a degree in biology, so I can usually keep up with some of your podcasters. Yeah, so you can, yeah, you kind of, I can see having, well, definitely having a degree in biology would certainly help. I know sometimes we get technical and Christine is even, is a lot better than I am about stopping and explaining things. Sometimes I listen to myself back and I think, I wish I would have explained what we were talking about there. Because when you kind of get into the jargon and the specific medical terminology and that sort of thing, I know that Sometimes my husband will be listening and he'll be like, what? You probably should have explained what that was. And I'm like, oh, crap. I'm sorry. <laughs> so yeah, it, it, it's definitely a challenge. I mean, even some days the doctors will look at us to tell us to order something. And it's like, all right, that's great that you want an MRI. I need like more info. I'm not allowed to order. Are we doing contrast? No contrast. What are we doing here? Yeah, exactly. And speaking of which, uh, does the patient need? Anything to help them uh, get through the MRI? Because we, you and I found a, an article about a nurse who recently has gotten herself and her hospital into a world of hurt and has caused major devastation because of that. It is a very bad thing, especially because it is at a hospital and not even just an imaging center. Yeah. Yeah, it's very serious. So Vanderbilt... Um, hospital, there was a nurse there. Basically, what happened is this patient went into the hospital with, I think, some type of a subdural hematoma, some some sort of a brain bleed. And they were having headaches, swelling of the brain, those types of things. And when th- they needed an MRI, it's one of the first things that you do when a patient comes in with those types of symptoms. And m- many patients are claustrophobic. It's it's literally one of the first things that we ask patients when they come into the hospital and it's part of their history is, do you have any any fears or anxieties that would affect the care that we give to you here, such as are you afraid of tight spaces? Are you afraid of needles? That sort of thing. And just so we can be aware of, of that so that we can help them. And that's exactly what happened here. The, the patient said, I, I guess must have indicated that that he or she was, you know, sort of claustrophobic. The doctor ordered a medication called Versed, which is a drug that is used to treat anxiety. It's administered a lot of times just in bedside procedures that, so that the the patient it sort of relaxes them and puts them in a state of sort of conscious sedation, so that they're able to get get them through the procedure. But what happened is in this case, and I'll, and I'll tell you, not working in a hospital, you may not be aware of this. I don't know if in your office there are situations like this, but in the hospital, sometimes 
there's something that's going on that's where the doctor's just like, go get me this. And you just, you go and get it. And it doesn't matter if there's an order for it. It doesn't matter. You kind of jump over a few of those safety precautions. It happens. And you know, every nurse knows at the time when they're doing this, that it's, it's, it should be a very scary time for any nurse who's going into a Pixis or an Omni or whatever the the machine is where they're getting the medicine. Mm-hmm. When you type your username and password into that, and then you start looking at the patient, and then it gives the list of medications that you can pull for that patient, there's just certain things that have been ordered by a physician or by a provider. If that medicine doesn't come up there, but the physician's standing there at the bedside going, come on, I, I need to, we got to get this done now. This patient may be having a stroke. We have to get this done right now. Go get, you know, that kind of thing. Right. So then you go, um, well, is it stocked at all? Maybe not for this patient, but maybe is it stocked? And so you, you type stocked meds instead of just for those, for that patient. And so what she okay. did is she typed VE for Versed and it pulled up all medications that start with VE. And she, I guess inadvertently chose a medication called Verconium, which is a paralytic. And basically it paralyzes your whole you know, neuromuscular system. It completely shuts everything down. And of course your diaphragm is part of that. That's what helps you. That's the muscle that you use to breathe. And so this patient is lying there in the MRI machine and all of a sudden is not, does not have the ability to breathe. and also doesn't have the ability to talk, to move, to in any way indicate that they're in distress. That is. Now, with using a Pixis, even the milligrams is different. So I'm assuming these are both pills versus injections. Um, I would have assumed this was an injection. Okay. Because if, for one thing, the procedure that was being done, you wouldn't give a pill and then wait 30 minutes for that to be digested. So I'm pretty sure it would have been an injection. They probably had an IV and they probably just... That would be different for us because usually if we send someone as internal meds, we have that time frame. So if someone says it, we usually order to the pharmacy an alprazolam or something along that line to Mm -hmm. calm them down that they can take before we send them for an MRI. Okay. We are not usually under a rush to do that. I see. That makes sense. That makes sense. So, so I, I can see this happening a patient going in to see their just regular provider because maybe they called saying, you know, I've got a really bad headache. I, um, I feel like I need to come in and they go in and they're describing to the provider their headache and all their symptoms and the, 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 he, you know, he or she shines the light in her eyes and says, nope. You're going to the hospital right now, and maybe that provider is aware that they do have anxiety issues. So either they go ahead and, like you said, order some some Xanax or Ativan or something to help calm them on the way to the hospital, um, or they call the hospital and say, hey, get this ready. This patient's coming. That would be a better situation as opposed to a patient just showing up at the hospital. Everything happening so fast, and then the nurse overriding these safety measures that should be in place. The, th- the fact is, though, the, this patient did pass away because of this. 
I mean, then there was really no reason for this. This patient was not going to die otherwise because of the what was going on already, from what I understand. Right. And correct me if I'm wrong, shouldn't they have also verified before they injected too? Is that not? It's hard for me to understand this because I don't, the, where I work, I, I work in a progressive critical care floor. It's sort of a step down unit. We do some bedside procedures where, yes, we do have to run and grab a Ahmed, but even then, we have a computer at the bedside, and we always scan the patient, scan the med every time. We just do, and if for some reason there was a some situation where that wasn't working, and it was just more important to go ahead and do this and override it, you talk about double and triple checking something. There's no right. way, you know. That, that I mean, we have them in place for that reason, but I can understand in the moment that it may have been overlooked, but that's a big, well, uh, they're now possibly going to be terminated from Medicare. So, Yeah. And that's the thing. Uh, This person lost his or her life. I don't know if it was a male or female, but they lost their life. Vanderbilt's ability to accept Medicare has been put in jeopardy. This, this person's family has been, their whole life has been turned upside down. The nurse don't know if it, was stated whether it was a male or female, but the nurse, one way or another, he or she, his his or her whole life has been changed and turned upside down. They will never get over this. They may be able to have a new normal, but this whole thing, I'm sure, is going to change them for the rest of their life. They're not going to be able to go forward without, at some point, being reminded. Right. And may never be able to practice as a nurse again. No, and I think there's going to be a lot of backlash where it was never reported to the Department of Health either. Because mm. the article did say that it never got reported, even though that's a mandated figure if someone was administered a wrong dose for anything that caused a death, right? Oh, I didn't even realize that. So this actually happened a year ago, and it maybe it took that long for the investigation to go through. Yeah. Well, I just... I think that sometimes we, at our our hospital, we talk about having a just environment. And basically that's saying we're just, we're only human. Right. We're we're just human. We can make mistakes. And I appreciate that environment. And it is necessary because we can make mistakes and we do and we will make mistakes. But at some point, somebody does have to be held responsible for it. And whenever someone has made such an egregious error and lack of judgment and lack of respect for the patient that's, you know, has their life in your hands. You know, they're so vulnerable. It's very sad to me. And I don't really know what the answer is, but I know that it's, this needs to be used as a wake up call for all healthcare providers. Right. And that's, I mean, that's why we have the Pixis. That's why we have the wow. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't, you can't skip the steps for this reason. Yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's an unhealthy reminder. Yes, it is. Well, I wanted to just talk about that briefly because I, I know how shocked I was whenever I saw that. So that's our news story. Sorry to start things out in such a negative. <laughs> Sticking with the theme. So speaking of horrible things that happen to people, we have a story this week about a nurse who was not really a nurse. I, nurse's age. 
she was referred to. Yeah, she was a nurse's aide at some point in her adult life, but I think she was referred to as a nurse by some people. And but I'm pretty sure it was a nurse's aide because I could never, I could not find where she at any time had held a license. So I don't, I don't think she was actually a nurse. So this is the story of Rebecca Fenton. And had you heard of this before we were talking about doing this story? I had not, which is odd because there is both a TV show and a movie on it. Mm-hmm. So I'm surprised because I do tend to enjoy true crime. Yeah. And it's this is a fascinating one that's been covered by lots of people. And there's so much controversy surrounding the story. And definitely two different sides and perspectives. So Rebecca Fenton was born on April the 27th, 1967 in Clearwater, Florida, to her biological mother, known as Karen. And I I never saw where Karen's last name was ever listed, but I guess it doesn't really matter. And Karen, by her own account, was under the influence of alcohol and drugs at the time and ended up losing custody of Rebecca. So Rebecca was adopted. I never actually saw what how old she was when she was adopted. No. Did you happen to see that? I didn't find it, no. But that kind of makes sense as we get further into the story, I think. It does. Karen, her biological mother, said that she wasn't the most reputable person at the time, talking about herself, the, the, the biological mother. She said she wasn't able to control her own life and manage it. So she lost custody of her daughter. But Rebecca's account of her own childhood was that her adoptive parents were wonderful. She had a great childhood. She said it was the tooth fairy and birthday parties. She was told she could be anything, could do anything. She's taught to always be the very best she could be. When asked of what she dreamed of being when she was younger, she said she she dreamed of becoming a nurse or a flight attendant. Which are slightly different professions. Um, and we've fallen somewhere in between, somewhere along the lines here. Mm-hmm. She fell somewhere, <laughs> somewhere in the in between. I, I mean, I am, she did get to travel. That is true. Yeah, she did. She did do some travel. She did mm. meet with lots of people. <laughs> I don't know how to put that one politely. <laughs> yes, she did. <laughs> And may have even dressed up like a nurse at some point during. That's bad. <laughs> you know how people are. So when she was in her late thirties, so I guess a little bit, you know, all she had a long life before she actually met her husband Larry. Um, mm-hmm. But she met him. He was in his early fifties. He was a little bit older than she was. So I guess they kind of caught each other's eye at the gym. She said they fell in love very quickly. And I think we're three within months, three months. They were engaged. Yeah. yeah. That, but I could see the appeal. He's older. He's stable. Had a house. Yeah. She was ready to just yeah both feet forward. Let's just get this done. I think she had some goals. Oh, definitely a few goals <laughs> in mind. Mm-hmm. And, and to, to move on with her life, I think. I think she yeah. may have gotten bored of all the travel. Right. Right. So they were married in Clearwater. And then apparently they got married and then had another wedding four months later in Nevada because Rebecca's friends and family were there. I think her marriage in Clearwater was more of a, I'm guessing, courthouse wedding to get married and then had the ceremony later on when everybody Mm -hmm. found out. I don't think it was all that planned. Yeah. 
Well, I think she planned it, not him. She planned it. She planned it from the get-go. <laughs> she knew exactly what was going on, I think. She said he was a handsome prince, and she said she'd been waiting her whole life for him. He was a successful architect. He made his fortune, actually, in the surgical equipment business. And I saw I saw some, you know how these things go. These articles can be so conflicting, especially because this happened here in the States, but Pierce Morgan with Killer Women, the mm-hmm. Netflix documentary series, covered this story over in the UK. And so there's a there are a lot of articles over there. And it's so funny because some of the some of those articles will quote her and it will be like and I said, mom, and I'm like, she did not say mom. <laughs> she did not say mom. Yeah. But they're literally quoting that she said mom, mom. Re- referred to yeah. her. Like, yeah. you guys. <laughs> it's a definitely a UK term. And <laughs> it seems to have brought up a lot of pressure from the UK about this story, too, because the other investigator that's working on the case currently is a mm-hmm. UK investigator. Mm. It's weird how the UK just got so involved with this. But Pierce Morgan, you know, he came to the United States and he goes around to these different prisons interviewing these women. So I guess he's just bringing that awareness to the UK. So it just gets everybody fascinated about it. And I think we have a little bit different because over in the UK, most of it's stabbing because they don't have the gun laws that we have Mm -hmm. over here Mm -hmm. so i think that's probably another gruesomely fascinating i guess side to the story yeah it lends more i guess more like you said gruesome details for people that that like that sort of sensational type stories but all in all she had a fairy tale life she according to her she had a he was her handsome prince and she said i knew i had a good i knew it was a fairy tale life and then, you know, of course, she had worked as a nurse's aide. And nurse's aides work very, very hard. That's a hard job. I know because I did it before I became a nurse. And as a nurse, I still do it. I still do all of those things. So it's a very difficult job. And so she went from that to now being married to somebody who has a lot of money. He bought her at this large house. And basically, she just got whatever she wanted. She said she didn't have to work. She became the housewife. She became the housewife, right. I saw somewhere where it said she was enjoyed being spoiled like a real housewife of Clearwater, you know? I mean, we all like to be spoiled, don't get me wrong, but mm-hmm. I think I'd go a little stir-crazy. But yeah. she, she said she didn't want to work. Well, she does. she did say that, and I don't know if maybe she just didn't want to work you know, doing the jobs that she was doing before. Maybe she wanted to be busy and doing, you know, doing things, but she, I think she possibly did get a little bored. Did you, I couldn't find a delineation from the prior job to the nurse's age. Did you find that? Anywhere? No, there's not a lot of talk about the, even the nurse's aid job. No, there's, I, yeah, there's not much on either and Mm-mm. that's a big jump because there's schooling required right so is that how she got herself through school mm-hmm. well and as a nurse's aide you if she was a certified nurse's assistant you know a cna i think it depends on the state how long the ed- how long they have to go to become a cna but i think it's it's maybe 
I'm not sure what it is in Tennessee. You can be a nurse's aide in Tennessee and not be a certified nurse's aide. So she could have even been that someone who just sits with patients or um, is trained at a hospital, but they're not necessarily state certified or however they consider that. But I couldn't find anything about that. I couldn't find any information about to what extent yeah. she was a nurse's aide. I, it's a, she's got a confusing background. That is definitely for sure. A vague mm-hmm. upbringing and a confusing background. Yeah. So should we get into, should we talk a little more about her background or should we talk about what happened when? Um, I think we have to talk about the background only mm-hmm. because I have a feeling that plays a lot into mm-hmm. why it was done. Yeah. So, so they did find out. Um, at some point that she had been a escort, she worked for an escort service, and she was a, quote, high-priced call girl. And traveled lots for it, so she got mm-hmm. her, definitely got her flight time down. Right. So she was living out her dream, I guess, if we're doing both sides. She got to travel, right. and she was a nurse's aide. She sort of, yeah, I could see that. But she was I, living the dream. I think I can see the appeal to being a real housewife from being an escort. Yeah. And we don't know. I know she said the gym, but was that a calculated move from the escort to seeing him? Because we don't, we just know they met at the gym, not that it was a paid service, Hmm. right? That's interesting because it's a good thought. I wonder, it only says that they met at the gym and it's the only thing I ever saw of all of the different accounts, but yeah, I just, Something about that sounds a little too calculated. So we move on to three years of marriage when Mm -hmm. everything changed on a lazy Super Bowl Sunday. Exactly. So super picture Super Bowl Sunday in a, you know, typical American household. The way that kind of goes, you know, if he's looking forward to watching the game that afternoon, as most people do, even people that don't like football want to watch the Super Bowl, if nothing for just the commercials or just the getting together with friends. and Right. Everybody's there. Everybody's cheering when something good happens and talking and hanging out. Right. I, yeah. That was definitely going to be a changing day for her. Yeah. She said he was going to order pizza. Take a nap and mm-hmm. get up at six to watch the game. But Yeah. And I guess she, they had, they had an attached home gym or detached, sorry, a detached, maybe a detached garage or something like a detached building that had a gym in it. Which I'm going to start right here is going, it's a little different for me because they met at the gym. I would assume you would be workout partners as well. Yeah. And at some point she talks about how wonderful their marriage was, but that is a little incongruent, you know, him being kind of lazy and she's going out to work out. She's got this very active life. Right. So it does seem a little odd. And do we know how long she was out? It says less than two hours later. So she walked. That's an impressive gym time. I'm not that I go to the gym. I prefer watching the movie. Um, but mm-hmm. that to me seems like a very long time, even for an avid gym goer. At your own house too, to be right. in the. Yeah. I mean, I could understand two hours if you have to, you know, drive to the gym, go in, get checked in, you know, put your stuff in the locker, go work out, you know, maybe take a shower, whatever. But this, she's, it's right there in her property. So to be out there for two hours to me does seem a little weird. But 
That's what she says happened. Um, so she it says she walked back into their house and she finds Larry motionless in a pool of blood on the floor of the foyer at the foot of the stairway leading to the second story. And she said she just remembers everything went hazy and she started screaming at him and she saw the pool of blood. She said it was about six inches. The way she described it, it's like his entire body is surrounded right, six inches out down in a pool of blood. Yeah. At one point, one of the people that was interviewing her said, asked her if she called 911 and she said, not right away. She said she tried to take his pulse. And that's interesting because, you know, we said there's six inches of blood all the way around his body. And she said she tried to take his pulse. Then she looked into the great room and she could see that the whole house, well, or at least that that part, was in disarray. She started yelling and told him to hold on because she thought that he was okay because his eyes were open. And then she ran upstairs. Which... Something, I guess to me, I would panic. I would probably have tunnel vision. Yeah. And if his eyes were opened, I think I'd be a little more worried because then you could see if they were moving or not. And clearly in six inches of blood, he's Mm -hmm. not moving his eyes any. And the disarray of the house and to run around and look upstairs and downstairs, not my idea. And what does she think happened to him? Well, right. right. That's not my idea of panic. And if he's face down why would she run upstairs that makes no sense there's no what scenario can you think of that would make sense for her to run upstairs only if she had heard something which was never brought up in anything but even still i don't know that i'd run towards it i'd probably run away from it exactly and i think at some point she does say that she was just so afraid and i'm just thinking i'm almost thinking that was a backtrack because she Mm -hmm. had already said I had already searched the house and I was mm-hmm. afraid. I, I mean, I carry a gun. I don't know that I would even run upstairs if I heard something. Mm-mm. I mean, he's laying there. There's nothing you can do for him. Or if she thought he was alive, if you, what are the, what are the two options here? You think he's alive and he's quote, okay, but you think somebody's in the house. Are you going to just leave him laying there? But I mean, she just left him or you think he's okay, but what happened here? Did he fall down the stairs and ha- has blood everywhere? So you're going to run upstairs for what? What's the point of running upstairs? Either you think somebody's up there, in which case, what are you going to do? You know? Right. And if, and this might just be me as well, if I found my significant other face down in a pool of blood. My first instinct would be to roll them over Mm -hmm. because I'd want to be able to check. Right. Face down is not a good angle because even if she can see his face. Right. So I just, that scenario seems, well, is very off from how I think a normal person would react to that. I I mean, I do too, but I guess if we give her you know, the benefit of the doubt and just say, well, we don't know how we would react in that situation. So maybe we we all respond differently. Right. So let's give her the benefit of the doubt. So she came back down the stairs. Now, when, while she was upstairs, she saw that more rooms had been ransacked. So she kind of ran upstairs. She's like, oh, the whole house has just been turned upside down. So she ran back downstairs, touched him again, 
tousled his head a little bit, told him to hold on, and then ran outside and called 911. You know, she's saying, my husband's laying in the middle of the floor and he's not moving. I don't know if he's even alive. This is her on the 911 call. Um, House has been ransacked. And she's like, please, please hurry. I think he's dead. I think my husband might be dead. But if you hurry, he may be alive. You may be able to help him. At some point, she also says something like, he can't leave me. He loves me. Something like that. Right. And nowhere in her 911 call does she talk about the blood. Mm -hmm. It's when the investigators get there, that's the first thing she brings up is the pool of blood he's laying in. But nowhere when she's talking to 911 did I find she said anything about blood. Just if you get here, you can help him. If you've got that much blood, I you would say. Think, I mm-hmm. think that would be he's bleeding out. Not, right. not you can help him. Yeah, she. The whole thing is very odd. The way that she responded and the the things that she said on the nine one one call it just just didn't make a whole lot of sense at all for somebody who had found him and that was shocked. You would think you know would not be saying those things, but again, benefit of the doubt. Yep. Sure. <laughs> so it looked like um, from the beginning, the detectives are saying that it looked like it had been maybe a robbery. Uh, the drawers had been pulled out. Cabinet doors were left open throughout the home. Their contents strewn all over the floor, the bedrooms and the living areas. And his Jeep was gone. So they're thinking, oh, this someone just came in here ransacked the place looking for whatever they could find and took what they could killed him and then left in his Jeep all while she's out in the gym, the gym. And she did mention she heard someone fall. She said Mm -hmm. it sounded like someone fell off a ladder, which Hmm. was refuted in the investigation from neighbors. They said it sounded like gunshot. Yeah. Which makes more sense. Well, that, and I don't care how loud your headphones are, you're going to hear a gunshot and know it's a gunshot. Yeah, Yeah, you know the difference. And there was a total of five gunshots. So I I just, I guess as someone who actively goes to the range with noise-canceling headphones, Mm -hmm. I don't care how good they are, you're still hearing it. Really? Yeah. Mm. Okay. When they got, when the detectives, the medics arrived that he had four gunshot wounds to his neck and back. Four gunshot wounds to his neck and back seems really odd to me for her to go up to him, shake him, move him around, and her to not know that he was dead. But like the detective said, too, there was no evidence that had shown he had ever moved from that one spot. And she yeah. said he tussled his hair and checked his pulse. So we've exactly. got we've got a delineation from evidence versus what she's saying she did. Yeah, and the way that it looked like it was a robbery because of everything kind of being ransacked and that sort of thing. When they start looking closer, they notice the only thing actually missing of any value was his jeep. Right there. Even his wallet that had a lot of cash in it was still there. And not to mention we're talking midday. We're not talking Mm -hmm. evening hours. And like they said, there would have been two cars in the driveway at that point. Mm -hmm. So 
that's an odd setup for a robbery gone bad. Yeah, broad daylight in sunny Florida. So the the detectives were, once they kind of realized that not a lot had been stolen, they start really questioning the, the validity of this story as there were things knocked over, that sort of thing. But with nothing being nothing missing, it seemed like a lot of trouble to go go to and then not actually take anything. That just didn't make a lot of sense to, to the detectives. Right. And they said the bookshelf had looked like someone just took their hand and swept it across to make it. You don't generally go to, I mean, I wouldn't if I was, I guess, robbing someplace, go to a bookshelf just to knock everything off. Right. No, no one really has secret doors behind bookshelves. That's not a thing. <laughs> this is not Scooby-Doo. <laughs> <laughs> so I agree. And I think they agree as well, because they, they're they just going, this looks more like a staged uh, crime okay. scene as opposed yeah. to a real you know, crime scene. And, and I guarantee you these detectives go to real robbery crime scenes all the time. So they know the difference. They know the difference between one that has just been staged and one where you can tell somebody was looking for something very specific. And that was the gut feeling of the detectives at this time. So they right. start looking and they, they're kind of thinking that Rebecca's acting a little weird too during all this. Right. During the video interview, she's <sighs> smiling and laughing and she defends that by saying they were making jokes. I think if I just found my husband dead on the floor, I don't care what joke you tell me, I'm probably not going to be amused. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and when I think about police officers, I where I where I work, we have you know security officers, and they their sense of humor is definitely um, underdeveloped usually it's because very dry. Yeah, they have to be serious. I mean they they deal with criminals all the time. They deal with people trying to manipulate them and people who are lying to them, and they have to. They basically suspect everyone. That's just who they are. That's their job. That's what they have to do. So the thought of police officers standing outside this man's home who they just saw in the house lying in a pool of blood, that they're going to then go out and make jokes to the widow of that person. It's just, it's almost, it's just impossible for me to buy that. Not to mention it would be um, probably a breach of protocol and Mm -hmm. highly insensitive. Yeah. So the fact that she's saying that she's, she, well, I was just laughing at some, they made a joke. If I were in, in her shoes and I were a widow and that had just happened and someone made a joke, I I would have been mad. I wouldn't have been laughing about it. I would have been like, why are you laughing? This is not funny. No, that's supposed to be somber is the, Mm -hmm. I like when I think of a, I mean, even a home invasion gone wrong, that would be Mm -hmm. a very somber serious event not a yeah there's just you know I don't there's know. no way these people are right if yeah. anything you try to console not make them laugh exactly rebecca says that they were suspicious of her from the very beginning they she's basically saying yeah once they decided i did it they didn't want to look anywhere else and they didn't want to consider that any, any other you know options which none of the evidence at the beginning pointed to her. Right. 
she had no gunshot residue. She had no fingerprints on the gun, which they did end up finding. Mm-hmm. Um, and they did find his Jeep with nothing taken out of it. So we're back to the whole, it almost looks staged. Because why would you steal a Jeep and then not either sell it for part, get rid of it? It's not that hard to make a car disappear. Right. You wouldn't leave it out in the open if you used it for a home invasion. I mean, again, you the, the, this person or people went to a lot of trouble and killed a man. Surely they had a, a purpose. They didn't really take anything of value from the home. So the Jeep is really the only thing that would in any way be a reason for them to do it. So why would they just leave it out in the open? Right. Leave it out in the open and not even take anything out of the Jeep itself. Right. Everything was still in the Jeep. Mm-hmm. Because didn't they find his laptop and everything inside the Jeep? Those are easy sellable items from a mm-hmm. criminal standpoint. Exactly. So they said that she looked like the she looked like the merry widow. Right. Which a merry widow should not be two terms together. Yeah. All smiles while she was still on the scene of her husband's murder. That's a very eerie mental image. This widow right there. This just happened. She's right out. She's in the in her front yard, right in front of the house. His body's still in there. And not that she's just maybe randomly making a, you know, laughing about something just out of being hysterical, but that her whole demeanor was like Mary and she just wasn't. Right. That's one of those, like you would read in a book while she may have smiled, the sparkle never lit her eye or (laughs) something along that. Like she looked way too happy to be sad about what was going on. Yeah. And she did not try to render aid to him. I mean, anything you would think that, she would try to do absolutely any something. There should be have been blood all over her trying right. trying to help she him. She should have been covered mm-hmm. in blood. Right. And the detective said that the blood was completely undisturbed in the pool around him and on his body. And there was absolutely no blood on her whatsoever. So it does sound like it was impossible that she did what she said that she did, which was check his pulse and tossle his head and all that. Right. And I mean, if we're thinking, all right, if the body's got six inches of blood spread out, Mm -hmm. you would have to kneel down to reach the body. Unless she's got abnormally long arms, I think you're within the six-inch blood pool to even check a pulse. I agree. She said that she didn't think it was wise for her to touch him, to get blood on her, to turn him over, to do anything like that. She said that she thought that would just make things worse for the scene, she said. It might have incriminated me. I was going to say, and she thought it would incriminate her. And in my mind, when she said that, I'm going, wait a minute. Isn't that backwards? Shouldn't you not be thinking about incriminating yourself at a crime scene of your husband? Mm Mm-hmm. It's the you last think? thing you're going to think of. You because it would never it should never occur to her 
that anybody would ever think that she would be responsible for doing that. But yeah, that was, for that to be the first thing in her mind that she's worrying about preserving evidence so that she nobody thinks she did this. I just and nurses' aides, like they said, she'd be trained in CPR. If he wasn't freezing, you would try to do CPR. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't like it. You can be the benefit of the doubt over here. I don't think I can be. <laughs> it gets harder and harder as this story goes on. As, I tell you, as you as you go right, all the all the keys fit in the lock. Which one's going to turn at this point? Yeah. So she calls nine one one. She's saying to the dispatcher, you know, this dispatcher must be thinking, what is wrong with this woman? Because she's saying, I was in the gym. I was in the gym. I was in the gym. She says, we love each other. This man is my life. And the the dispatcher's saying, okay, I understand. No no one has uh, that much conviction that they were at the gym. I don't even know if that (laughs) would have been a mentioned item in my brain at that point. (laughs) For one thing, I get so sick of people Jim bragging. I'm just like, stop Jim bragging. Even in a 911 call, you've got to let every freaking body know you went to the gym. We all know you work out. <laughs> I hate it when people do that. I can agree. Oh, yes. I just, oh, God help me. I don't know what she was doing with her 911 call. She wanted to set the ground. She wanted the ground rules of I was uh-huh. not in the house. Right. It had nothing to do with this. I was not in the house. She knew before when she was planning this, I'm going to be in the gym while all this is going on. And so right. that was the story. So she's establishing this on this phone call that she knows is, you know, is going to be recorded. I mean, I give her props because that is technically a good way to set your own alibi. Right. Yeah. And it is but- detached from the house so she could claim that she couldn't hear. You know, and who can prove what you can and what you cannot hear. But she's making this all about her, you know, rather than I can't believe my husband is, you know, I can't believe this happened. What happened? He's please help him, whatever. Instead of making about him, she's focusing on herself. What am I going to do? I he loved me. I'm losing him. You know what I mean? It's kind of I can't live without this man. That's I. I, I don't know. I guess I understand the sentiment, but it is very self-centered. Mm-hmm. So Larry didn't go around talking to his friends and his buddies about marriage problems. It made it hard for the detectives to go back and try to figure out a motive for her. You know, what was going on? Were they having problems? You know, they look at the situation and say something is way off here. This Her story just is not adding up. All of these details are way off. So then they want to go then and, and establish some sort of a motive, you know, where they having problems in their marriage, where they having financial difficulties, that sort of thing. And I think they were having a hard time because they were kind of quiet people and they sort of stayed at home, that sort of thing, which is probably part of the problem for her. Because she said she was used to traveling and being active and that sort of thing. And she was probably going a little bit stir crazy. Right. With the fancy restaurants, the places she got to travel, the Mm -hmm. people she was meeting. I think that's a hard shift from such a outgoing social daily life to an at-home wife. Yeah. And of course, you know, and she says that having that lifestyle and working for an escort service doesn't make her a murderer. And of course it doesn't, but it's, it almost lends itself to understanding 
how she did have this very active, exciting lifestyle. And then she could get kind of into this sort of the drudgery day to day of being married to somebody who's 10 years older than her, who's settled in and, and she's like, okay, what have I done here? And, but she likes the security. So as time goes on, they, they keep digging and, and they ask if she ever cheated on him. And of course she says, no, no, I, you know, I didn't. Were you seeing anyone? You know, she said, no, she didn't have a boyfriend. There wasn't anybody. Now she does admit that there was a friend named David that she was a close friend of that she found attractive, but they didn't have an affair. There was no sexual relationship. It was just sort of a crush, she said. Right. And they had, and when they had dug up the background of her being in an escort, they had asked, how did her husband take it? And when did he find out? Mm-hmm. And she said it was before the marriage and he took it well. Yeah. I guess I give him props for that, which kind of leads me to believe that's how they met, mm-hmm. because I don't necessarily know that that would be a, a subject I would take well. Yeah. I think that would probably throw me off on my perceptive perception of the person. If that actually happened, where she had to have this conversation with him, and she said, look, you know, in my past life, I did this. It's hard for me to believe that he just went, oh, okay, thanks for telling me. And then they just went on and never talked about it again. Mm. And that just seems that they odd. They never brought it up again. Right. Which I, which is why I think they met through the service mm-hmm. personally. But it seems it, it seems it's difficult to to believe that that's how that went down. Right, but, and it's hard because obviously we don't have his side of the story. Mm-hmm. But that would be one of those if he's not confiding in anybody. I think I would have to run that by my friend if someone if my significant other told me that. I think I'd have to be like. Am I supposed to be okay with this? Like, am I being logical here? Mm-hmm. So I find it weird that there was no one he confided any of his marital things, especially that. Yeah. And I and I think that maybe he wouldn't have told if he was embarrassed about that, if she told. But for her to say, oh, no, he was fine with it and we went on and never talked about it again. That's going to go one of two ways. Either he already knew, like you said, he knew from the beginning. Or when she does tell him, well, one of three, either she, she may have never told him and he didn't know, but, but if she told him there's going to be some, something's going to happen there. I mean, he, no man is going to just be like, oh, okay, glad you told me and then move on, never talk about it again. It's going to come up. And so the, to me, a reasonable answer to that would have been either, well, I never told him because I was embarrassed or he knew from the beginning or yeah, I told him and it, it, it was kind of a rough conversation at first, but you know, we worked through it. That's a more reasonable answer than I told him and he didn't care. And we never talked about it again. Right. And not to mention, I don't know because she said it, he knew before the marriage. I don't know that I'd be comfortable with someone only have known them for three months to yep. bring up that kind of path. Right. Because I, I don't, you don't want to lose sight of the fact that it was three months right. before they were engaged. So they so. get, they meet at the gym. Three months goes by very quickly. 
at, at three months, it, it happens in the blink of an eye. So mm-hmm. they meet at the gym. They're going out at at some point. She tells him you know, during this very short three month period about her past, and then he still wants to marry her. I'm not saying that he wouldn't that somebody wouldn't marry somebody who has a past that way like that. I mean, everybody has a past. Everybody has things, you know. Um, and I don't want to shame anyone. You know no, what I mean? Not at all. Um, but I'm just saying that it's hard for me to believe that this would have not caused any issues whatsoever. I mean, the the STDs alone, you know, the worrying about that. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I want you to do your lab work right now. We're going to the health department. <laughs> <laughs> oh, see, I, I so, all right, I'm going to make an aside for this one, only because for me, that's funny because it's not out of the norm, I guess. As a gay guy, that is a very prevalent question of when's the last time you've been tested. Yeah. We tend to have that open dialogue, which I think is funny because I look at some of my straight friends and go, you didn't have them tested? <laughs> no? Okay. <laughs> if you say so. <laughs> yeah, We should be having that conversation. It's a healthy conversation and there's nothing it, wrong with having that conversation. It is. It's a very healthy conversation, but I think it gets missed a lot, which yeah, I that's a lot of stuff for three months to happen, mm-hmm. not to have some sort of a little red flag of, well, maybe I should wait a little longer to see how it turns out. Especially for somebody who he's, this man is over 50 years old. You, He's very successful. I don't. I doubt he would have gotten to this point in his life without being having somewhat of a head on his shoulders, you know? Right. So it, it does seem a little odd. I, I feel like she's lying, basically, I guess was what I'm saying. <laughs> Somehow oh, the, the answer to that. the benefit of the doubt? Did we take that away? I think I just jumped right <laughs> off the cliff on that one. <laughs> I'm like, I oh, forget it. It's way too hard. I'm letting that go. Yeah. So she's, I just feel like she, every time she's asked a question, she you don't know. I don't even think she knows what's going to come out of her mouth. And the answers are just, you don't, they may be a lie. They may be the truth. There may be some variation in between, but that's what a sociopath is. And that's what they do. They just, everything is calculated and they just, you can't trust anything they say. Right. And it is very calculated. I think up until the point where they actually find the murder weapon. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where she went wrong. Right. Because I, I guess we could sort of explain away the behavior and the lack of blood on her. But to find the murder weapon under the seat in her own car. I mean, explain that. How? How? Because, like the detectives say, so that means someone drove away in the Jeep and then came back to plant that because in the bag with the gun are the keys to the Jeep. You're not getting anywhere without the keys. Right. And so, and her her story to that, from what I remember, is that her answer was that someone basically was framing her. They wanted to make it look like she did it, so they put it in her car. Which... I I guess there are better ways to frame someone mm-hmm. than going through all the effort of making it look like they had a burglary gone bad and then frame the housewife. But 
how did you even know that car was hers? Some people have two cars. If she had a car and he had a Jeep, maybe he commuted. There was, there was a little, but I just, I think she would have been better off leaving the gun in his Jeep because that at least throws it away from the scene of the crime. Like, why the car? You know they're going to look. No, maybe I, it, that's just, I guess maybe that's just me. Like, you know they're going to look in your car. <laughs> if they stole one, they probably went through the other if we're going for the burglary. Right. Yeah. I, I just, I, she confuses me. I kind of would like to sit down and talk to her just to be like, all right, what the hell is going on in that head of yours? <laughs> I know. And apparently a lot of people have because a lot of people have gone and, and interviewed her and she loves talking about it. But they do find the gun in her car under the seat. They felt like uh, the, the the detectives felt like the evidence at this point is starting to really be pretty overwhelming that it's pointing to her as opposed to a burglar. Mm. Um, but he said the suspect would have to enter the residence, go up the stairs, mysteriously find the gun that's hidden in a bedroom drawer, come back downstairs kill Larry and then ransack the apartment, steal odds and ends, and then move it all to the Cherokee, take the Cherokee, drive it around the block, abandon it before returning to the crime scene to plant the gun and the other stolen articles in Rebecca's car. You know, what's interesting to me is that just that whole scenario saying that out loud. I mean, it it seems so ridiculous it's amazing, but it took like six years for them yeah. to arrest her. And she was not in jail that whole time, Mm-mm. right? No, I mean, was- they didn't even, they they interviewed her at first, but of course she denied it. And she did cooperate and they did gunshot residue, hair fibers, clothing on all of that stuff. And they... Did there was no gunshot residue on her whatsoever, and the 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 police officer said that the she could have taken a shower and washed her hands, and if she, if she had worn gloves, then it's still possible that she wouldn't have had gunshot residue on her. Right, but she did pass three polygraph tests too. Right, I give her props for that one because that. Uh, I don't think easy to mm-hmm. pass three consistently. She's pretty much cool as a cucumber, that one. <laughs> yeah. You have to be very in control of your emotions, I think, mm-hmm. to pass a polygraph three times. But I always find it interesting that the police, are they believe in the polygraph test unless it doesn't go with their way. Right. I I just, that's not, I think we need a better variant of that one. Mm-hmm. Can't we just get like a truth injection? Why have we not like made this yet? Wouldn't I know. That be so much easier than all this. Somebody needs to do that. Well, so it, it probably goes against our civil rights, right? Oh, I'm sure it does. But what doesn't? <laughs> <laughs> so, so at this point, they think it's going cold, correct? Mm-hmm. Because yes. she's passed everything. They can't put anything on her. Mm-hmm. Nothing leads to her, even though 
they find the gun in her car, which baffles me, but fine. We'll run with the she's being framed. Mm-hmm. So, what do we do from here? Yeah, then, uh, Rebecca, you know, Pierce Morgan at one point said that she is either a cold, calculated murderer or the most unlucky woman in the history of false convictions. <laughs> but, yeah. I mean, I, cl- clearly that's a loose translation, a loose, a loose quote, <laughs> quotation. But her house, that house, she, she remained living in that house after this happened for years. And the, and it's not like the police were just going, well, I guess she didn't do it. I mean, they, they knew she did or they felt like she did it, but they just didn't feel like they had enough evidence. And then all of a sudden the house is, uh, ketchup's on fire. And burned completely to the ground. Completely to the ground. I mean, the house was probably in foreclosure because she'd lived there for six years. She probably did took out a mortgage or something on it. You know what I'm saying? Like to live. I guess. But uh, when we don't know, because the case wasn't closed, so there was probably no insurance payout for his half a million. Mm-hmm. Right? I would the say. The case would have to be closed for that to get. Yeah. She says that she didn't have any reason to gain financially from it because it, she couldn't get the payout because the house was in foreclosure. But... I wonder if she really knew that when she burned the house down or when, quote, the house was you know caught on fire. When she burned it down. We don't actually know if she did it, right? They I don't. There, there was an accelerant, but mm-hmm. not that it was ever proven to be her or someone else. Yeah, it definitely is very suspicious. And like Pierce Morgan said, very um, oddly coincidental. And she has got to be the most unlucky convenient. person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very convenient for her. And right. I I think that probably would have been a shock to her that she wasn't getting any money out of it. I, w- I would assume if your house burns down, you would get the homeowner's insurance. Mm-hmm. But I guess if it was, if they can't prove it was you or someone else and you're already under suspicion for murder, I could see why she didn't get the money. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we go back to her. So her reporting a new domestic violence. Yeah. And actually it's kind of ironic because it was sort of the, the the detectives say it's that kind of the lead that they were kind of looking for because she reports a a domestic disturbance. And then her boyfriend at the time. Who is not David, the original guy. It is someone else. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's this new person. Yes. Alfred. What an unfortunate name. I know. <laughs> yeah, and he he tells them something really interesting. It says that he told her that at some at one point when they were fighting, she held a knife to his throat and said, "I'll kill you like I, ki- I killed Larry." And, and and the rebuttal is she scoffs at that. Girl, you know you did it. You know you said that. <laughs> <laughs> well, and her her answer to that is that's silly. He was wasn't stabbed. He was shot, you know, to which the detectives went, Oh, right. That's, that's true. You got us there. <laughs> right. Silly us for thinking you <laughs> may have, you know, held a knife to someone else. Uh-huh. <laughs> I know. 
I know some of these people, the things that they say, she, I don't think she thinks two seconds before words start coming out of her mouth. She just says things. And then at some point you just go, you know, you might want to thought about that. Yeah. And I mean, I get where she's coming from because he has a criminal background. So I could be trying to pin it on him. Mm -hmm. If that were the only thing in this whole case was just his word against hers that she said that to him, then clearly that would not be an should not be enough to convict anyone of murder. But it's just all of the things pieced together. Right, that and they said, despite everything, like them trying to get all the facts out of him, he had already told other people before he was even taken in to be questioned by the police. Mm -hmm. So it really wasn't like he was making it up. Other people could corroborate that he had said that well before the investigation into him started. Right. So I... I would probably stick with the benefit of the doubt on his side. Because mm-hmm. if you already told someone else, I don't think anybody's that good at being premeditative. No. <laughs> I'm, I agree with you. That is the turning point for the case. Mm-hmm. That's when they believe they have enough to actually charge her with the murder of her husband. Which I don't even understand that because, you know, this person who does stand to benefit from, you know, trading his testimony for maybe getting a lenient charge or sentence or something. When you had all this other evidence, I, it's, it kind of blows my mind a little bit that I don't really understand it. I think it's because a lot of it, while it points back to her, mm-hmm. I think there was no physical connection because she passed the polygraph. There were no fingerprints. There were no fibers. There were no blood stains on her clothes. Mm-hmm. I, I almost want to give her prompts for being very good about it. She did technically think a lot of it through because if he hadn't said this, it would probably still be ongoing. Right. But that was, I think, I think that's what they needed to be like, here's what he said. And here's all this oddly coincidental evidence that we may not be able to actually tie to her, but does line up to the story quite well. Yeah. And, you know, her her biological mother, Karen, she actually sort of reunited with her as an adult because Karen said that she, Rebecca's biological father was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And Karen was concerned that, Rebecca needed to know that. And so she, I guess, looked her up to just sort of give her some history so that she would know what was in her past medically so she could be aware of it. And as it turns out, she had an, Rebecca had an alcohol problem herself and had to sign up for AA. And so Karen tells the story of a conversation that they had where Rebecca told her mom that she was attracted to a guy in her AA group. And she said that she told her about the guy and Karen said that she said, what are you doing? You know, you have this wonderful man that you're married to. And Karen says that Rebecca said, I know mom, why would I pick a pauper when I have a prince? And Karen actually had to testify against her daughter. So Karen actually says that, you know, her biological mother says that after watching all of the evidence and seeing the entire trial, she thinks that. Rebecca did it. 
she thinks she killed him, which is horrible for her to go on international but, television. On, on Yeah, on record yeah. and say that. But. And she said that, yeah, to Pierce Morgan in that interview, because I watched that. And then he goes and tells her. And she's just devastated and cries and says she doesn't believe him because she said, no, she supported me through this whole thing. She's, but she was at the trial. But the thing is, she said, because she was at the trial and saw all of that evidence, that's what convinced her. But I'm just kind of surprised that she would say that out loud, you know. I guess, especially for someone who had to give up her daughter due to addiction, you'd yeah. think she would have a um, more lenient outlook. Yeah, and be more compassionate for, at at the very least, feel maybe a little bit responsible for the way she turned out, being so callous. Right, and we don't know really about the upbringing of the adoptive parents, right? Because Mm -hmm. it couldn't have been all that good if she went into the escort service. Yeah, she claims that she had a wonderful childhood, but I don't know if that's just her again. Yeah, that doesn't line up. I don't think Mm -hmm. if, if I had a wonderful childhood i don't see myself in an escort service mm-hmm. it just S- something's off but yeah, yeah again which, we just never know true so the jury did convict her and from what i understand a very swift verdict they came back and yes. found her guilty and she's sentenced to life without parole and so far all of her appeals have been denied yeah so, so far they really think she did it yeah, I have to agree. Um, all of the evidence tends to support that for me anyway. Right. Yeah, I, I would agree. So she is in jail and she's got a British investigator trying to get her out of jail. <laughs> yeah, so we're back. To, we're back to the Brits again. I saw that. They're obsessed. They are. The British Home Office in London, which is the equivalent of our FBI, mm-hmm. is unsure of the conviction. Unbelievable. Do you guys guys have have murder over there? (laughs) They've got all their cases solved. And now they're coming over to solve ours. So I guess that does it for our bad nurse story. So for our good nurse, this is a really interesting story. I found this a long time ago when I was kind of redoing some research. And I thought, it's just bizarre. It's had an entire book written about it um, called Murder in the Bayou. And it's a just a, a strange story. But the nurse in it, the quote, good nurse, Nina Ravy. And she is a nurse practitioner in a yes. small town. Mm-hmm. Small town in the bayou. Right. And she had seen several of these, the, the articles refer to as sex workers. And some of them started confiding in her while she was treating them. Mm-hmm. And they were scared. And she said she started seeing a pattern. Yes. And I don't necessarily understand the whole what they were being treated for. Mm -hmm. Did you find that? Like in the interview, I didn't hear anything about what they were being treated for. I didn't really either. And I don't know if she can't divulge that because of HIPAA or maybe it just was never. I never saw that either. But I guess over a period of years, this nurse had treated some of them in a clinic that she operated in Jennings. Yes, they were all in jail, weren't they? Because she spoke to the warden, right? So maybe the clinic was connected with the sheriff's department. Yes. So, okay, because she had brought it up to the warden, so that would make sense that they were in 
some sort of trouble because they were involved with drugs. Mm-hmm. I don't, yeah, this, this one was a little confusing, especially because the nurse who's Nina, who's bringing it to the attention, has an odd role in the unsolved mystery, unfortunately. Yeah, and this whole book that's written, this murder in the bayou, it's basically, there's a lot of controversy around it. Because it's sort of accusing some law enforcement of doing some things that are of, you know, being involved in some right misconduct on the law enforcement side. Yeah. So and she's a whistleblower. So this was a story that Dr. Oz did. He had this nurse practitioner on one of his investigator investigator. <laughs> yep. Investigator. I mean, I just make up words, okay? If I can't think of one, <laughs> I'll say something. And you know what I mean. Oh, it's fine. Yes, one of his investigative episodes. Yeah, an investigative journal. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I've been at this way too long. My mind is a little bit mushy. So, investigative journalist, one of his investigative journalists found this nurse practitioner and brought her on to the show. Her name was Melissa Moore. And I guess she's like the true crime correspondent. So I think Dr. Oz, you know, he's a daytime talk show. He He's going to appeal to that day. The people who like to watch like daytime TV and the, he's trying to get on the true crime bandwagon like we all are. So he's got a correspondent that goes out and, you know, Researches and she's this an stuff. interesting correspondent because she's the daughter of the Happy Face Killer. Who, Melissa Moore? Yeah. What? Yes. Oh, my gosh. My mind is so blown right now. I didn't even know that. Yes. That was um, on one of the videos. They were talking about how she's gotten into it because of her father, who was the Happy Face Killer. Whoa. Like, I, I, but I can understand because you want to figure out where your father went wrong. So I can mm-hmm. understand it's almost like a obsessive passion. Yeah. So, yeah. So she, she found Nina in the bayou who, mm-hmm. after the first three women had died, came forward to confront the warden about it. And the warden kind of just dismissed it and said, no, they're just lying. Mm-hmm. And when it was brought to life, we now have this issue of poor Nina, who was essentially ruined for coming forward. And was it the state police that said they'd ruin her? Or was it the local law enforcement that said someone had said they would ruin her reputation? And they did. She's no longer got the practice. She foreclosed on her house, all for saying something's not adding up with this and what the women are all telling. And I would tend to believe her mm-hmm. because the, I mean she has to take the Hippocratic Oath she's not going to lie she's going to she had a people. lot to lose she was she risked her life to do this she did especially because mm-hmm. it's an ongoing investigation that's still not solved yeah to say I think they're covering this up essentially I know so I feel so bad for her that she's gone from having a a career as a nurse practitioner to essentially, I guess, I mean, there are other things that you can do with that degree, but it's not doing what she wanted to do. No, they all believe something special will come of it. I mean, 
I feel bad because it's not fair to do something that is maybe not. I don't want to go nice. That's not um, the appropriate response, I guess. Yeah. But get punished for the appropriate response is not fair. And it does kind of bring it back to, is it really the law enforcement doing it? If we've gotten the ability to disqualify her from everything and it's still not solved. And and their response, you know, there was a deputy, <clears throat> a chief chief deputy, excuse me, who responded by saying, quote, they proclaimed that they have overwhelming evidence and information that would make the case solvable, but they haven't approached us or given us any of this information to verify if it's true. Um, so I think what they're saying is... I find it very unlikely that something like eight murders in a small town... Mm-hmm. I mean, you got to be able to put two and two together at some point. Yeah. And I think they're sort of maybe attributing it to possible ser- serial killer or something like that. But I think that it's either one of two things. I think that Nina Ravy really, truly believes what she said. Now, she could be wrong. I mean, she could have her her instincts and the things that these women were saying to them, it could all be coincidental, coincidental, and she could, she could be wrong in what she's saying. But I think she was genuine. And I think that she genuinely felt like she had to come forward and, and tell her the story. And it cost her her career, which is really sad to me. And that's why I felt like I wanted to, you know, just talk about this and tell the story. And I would tend to agree with her story, too, because even Dr. Oz's investigator went, it's not typical of a serial killer to kill related people. Mm-hmm. All these people knew each other. They were all from the same town. Right. They were all found within three miles of each other. Mm-hmm. It's not, that's not how a typical mentality. It's very curious. Mm-hmm. Yep. And like they said, the only link is they've all seen murders gone bad from the drug deals. Yeah. You know, maybe she's putting her life back together. I hope she is. And I hope that she's able to figure out a way to bounce back from this and that she's able to find happiness. And hopefully these women that this happened to, that there will be some answers and some justice for them one way or another, you know, whoever, whoever's responsible, I would hope. And that's another reason for talking about it and keeping it out there. And this is a little bit, usually whenever we do stories on here, we do stories that have an ending, but this one is sort of like an unsolved mystery kind of thing. So that's going on for years at yes. this point. Mm-hmm. She didn't do anything wrong. Right. All she did was speak up for what she believed in. I don't understand why she would have lost her license unless there was a completely unrelated incident that happened that they were focusing on because. She had come for, you know, that kind of like shed, shed the light on her, her practice. Yeah. And I guess if you, if you really want to look at anybody, if with anybody while they're doing their job, you're going to, you can find mistakes people make. And I, I suppose if they really wanted to get her out of practice, they could probably find somewhere that she's made a mistake and be able to get her license pulled from her. I guess, but that's, you don't want to see that. That's mm-hmm. just, but. Well, what can you do? It's just you got to make people aware of it, I guess. That's all we can do. 
It's very discouraging, you know, the thought that somebody was trying to do what they thought was the right thing, and then they get punished for it. Right. And it wasn't, and it wasn't really a right thing for the wrong reason, either. Mm -hmm. It was a right thing because people had been murdered. No, that's what's so sad about it. Well, I guess that's it. That's our two stories. We did our, we did our time. It's been a really fun episode. It's been interesting. We've had some technical problems, but thank you so much. I really appreciate it, Cam. And I just want to remind everybody to look us up on social media. Find us on Instagram. Also, wherever you listen to podcasts, be sure to rate and review and subscribe so that it helps us with our popularity and getting us up in the ratings. And I also want you to remember that even if you're a bad girl or boy, be a good nurse. Please be a good nurse. We need them. (laughs) Please.